Well, welcome back. This is episode 58. We're getting into that stage of middle age, you know, where it starts to look less like middle age and a little bit more like... We're past middle age, Hugh, let me tell you. <laughs> when, does, when does a pension card kick in? Um, I'm the hack, Hugh Remington, hacking away here, but I am with the professor, Peter Van Onselen, uh, network political editor for uh, Channel 10. PVO, how are you hanging? Parliament's Good. back. Must yeah, be fun. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm down here in Parliament as we speak, uh, and uh, it's an unusual sitting, actually, because normally, uh, as you well know, uh, Parliament sits either Tuesday to Thursday or Monday to Thursday. It certainly doesn't sit on a Friday, um, but this week, there will be a Friday sitting with a Friday question time, and that's all COVID-related. The reason they're doing that is because all these poor MPs that are here have to stay over the weekend because there are so, well, the ones in Sydney, I suppose, can go home. But for everyone else, uh, there are so few flights and most of them have come here on RAF flights. Uh, so what they did when setting up this sitting fortnight, they unusually did it as a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week sitting week. The MPs all hang around in, in the ever exciting Canberra over the weekend and then it continues Monday to Thursday next week. So a Friday sitting not the most common thing. Sometimes it overlaps to Friday, but yeah. Canberra's not a bad town to hang out, you know, and um, <laughs> Crimea River, they've worked three days at their actual representative jobs in the parliament. I know most of them, you know, their role is largely, um, uh, you know, to roll up and provide the numbers. So, you know, mm. so there's a lot more to politicians life than parliament, but anyway, leave that aside. We've got a lot to talk about, about actually where we're going with it's getting clear signals from the prime minister. As he says, we are now on the road back. It's not about going further down uh, the area of stimulus. Uh, childcare sector is feeling that um, it's no longer going to be free from July the 1st. Well, what do you think about that? The childcare sector, you know, they've, is that a broken promise? Because I've seen this uh, argued in different directions by different people and not necessarily just government v opposition. Do you think that the government's broken its promise on childcare? I think anyone who listened to the promises that were being made at the start of the stimulus package would have understood, in the real world, would have understood that these were things that were malleable and subject to circumstance. So I don't yep. think it's a broken promise like some other broken promises. I, th I think it gave rise to possibly uh, the best line uh, that we've heard from Alba for a while, and that is that the government now has is giving us a reverse Titanic, it's women and children last, because because what I've really noticed in response to this has come from women who say, look, we're hearing lots of stuff about all these jobs uh, that men get advantage from, including the uh, packages to support the construction industry. We talked mm. about this before where blokes, tradies and so on are going to get what effectively amounts to uh, fed through the person who's trying to get a, a renovation constructed, uh, a subsidy from the taxpayer that goes to tradies who often earn more than the average taxpayer. Whereas you're seeing on the other side of the gender line, uh, childcare, which rightly or wrongly is often perceived as being something that is there to uh, liberate women uh, to get on with their jobs and so on, that there are restrictions turning up on childcare. And I wonder if there's not uh, an underlying anger that is building um, among women about the way oh. Scott Morrison goes about this business. Well, how can there not be? I mean, you know, female um, sectors are often screwed over by, by all governments, frankly, but particularly by coalition governments, which just happen to be predominantly controlled by men 
when you look at their parliamentary makeup. But in the current climate, I mean, this isn't just the federal government doing this. Uh, I was fascinated by a story out of South Australia showing that the state government, they're also a liberal government, uh, was, you know, cutting nurses um, as a result of some of the economic challenges that they face. Nurses, which, as we know, is another profession that is predominantly women. But talk about a profession that you wouldn't want to be cutting jobs in at the moment in case of a second wave in this pandemic. But economic imperatives apparently require that to happen. So at the federal level, you've got childcare workers, predominantly women, as you say. At the state level in South Australia, at least, you've got uh, nurses, predominantly women. Uh, and then, yeah, those handouts are coming thick and fast around the construction sector and so on, which are predominantly men. Here's a fun fact for you, Hugh. I don't think there's a woman on the expenditure review committee of the federal government. Uh, that, Gee, you, you know, wouldn't that have is... noticed that judging by their decisions, uh, Peter. <laughs> Well, that's why I raise it, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, I mean, you've got everyone from the Prime Minister to the Deputy Prime Minister to the Treasurer to the Finance Minister. Greg Hunt might be there as one of the big spending portfolios. Uh, It's been different people at different points in time. But no women uh, on the ERC for this government. And it's the ERC that makes these core decisions and fundamentally uh, about which sectors get assistance and which don't as they look at the books. And women are getting badly. Uh, left behind on this one and I can understand if they're frustrated by it yeah and it's not just that women work predominantly in childcare or or people who work in childcare are predominantly women but again we go back to the real world and while we try to keep a uh, uh, you know a a gender empowered household in the Rimmington Lloyd household which I inhabit um, my wife I'm sure would say that uh, whenever there's a problem with childcare uh, she would she would argue that she the eyeballs go to her first. And this is <laughs> me a culpa uh, on um, you know okay. There's a problem with childcare. You sort it out. And in other words, that it's not just it's women who, who are in the job, but it's women have to go mm. pieces. Well, as well. And and just in case there's any doubt about that, by the way, the um, the coalition uh, senator from Queensland, Jared Rennick, uh, helpfully made a contribution. Oh my God! What about that? In which he Go said, on. "I'm going to quote you here because uh, because he's th- this is this is great stuff. Uh, you almost want you almost you must hear in the back of your mind a kind of a crackle over the broadcast as if we're listening to the the big uh, wooden wireless there in the 1930s." He says, "If you can keep a child at home and if you can keep a parent at home, you're going to halve the congestion on the roads. You're going to halve the pollution, and you're going to increase the quality of life for their young children and the parents." So there you go. Um, less childcare. Is, is, is that is that is that, that, him, into, is that is that him who offering to stay at home and let his wife work? That's very snag of him. I'm impressed by very, that. Very snag. Uh, did, right. did I miss something? Is that not what he meant? Well, he he did make a cultural reference, and um, I thought it uh, apt that the cultural reference dated, I think, from the 1930s, and that was the great movie, The Wizard of Oz. Um, when he said that uh, Dorothy didn't tap her shoes together and say there's no place like childcare. For those uh, who want to do in media studies and film studies going back to the uh, early days of Hollywood, uh, it was in fact that she said there's no place like home, and that's the point that he was making. But there seems something remarkably um, uh, you know, whiskery and cobwebbed about that kind of argument being made by a coalition senator. Well, and yet it seems to be consistent with what we're seeing in policy coming out of the government. Where do we even start on that? I mean, putting to one side all of the sexist undertones to it, that you know, it's a woman's job to do this, because I'm sure it wasn't him offering to stay home and halve congestion on the roads. I'm sure it's him expecting his wife to do so and the wives of other 
working men to do so. I'm not sure that there's only one CEO in the Van Onselen household and it's not me. So I'm not sure that my wife would necessarily take those traditional views, but uh, put all of that to one side. Yeah. Even just this idea that he's got uh, that the socialization benefits of childcare are somehow um, not of value and you're better off to keep a child at home. There are a myriad of studies about this showing the socialization benefits of childcare uh, versus this antiquated, inaccurate notion that some traditionalists have that you're better off to keep your child at home. I I have to confess, we've got two kids. Our firstborn, I was the one, more so than my wife, she's one of four, I'm an only child. I was the one that sort of, as I had the flexibility then being in full-time academia and my wife was was on maternity leave and, and she took extended maternity leave um, unpaid rather than go back to her law practice as it was at the time. We had the capacity to keep our firstborn at home for longer. And I had this, I now realise, inaccurate, antiquated notion that it was better to have them at home and you know keep them from childcare as long as conceivably possible. Once we then put our firstborn into childcare, the socialization benefits that she got almost instantaneously meant that when we had our second born and we were in a similar position, both financially and work-wise, that we could have made the same choices. I had learned from my earlier mistake and I'd also read up, by the way, on the studies between the two. And the benefits are so profound. Now, you know, not every child is the same, but broadly speaking, the benefits are so profound getting kids into childcare with them being able to interact with other children learn skills, and then also, quite frankly, learn from childcare professionals, not just from parents. Now, you want a healthy balance. You don't throw your kid in childcare at 7 a.m. and pick them up at 7 p.m. if you have the capacity uh, to integrate them more into family life as well as childcare. But this idea that keeping them out of childcare is a social benefit for them is actually not just old-fashioned, but it's frankly wrong on the evidence these days. Yeah, and we hear a lot about how, in fact, uh, kids have done the childcare a route tend to get tend to make their transition into uh, schooling uh, mm. better, but uh, let's bring it back again to the choices that the government has to make, and it's about money, um, it's about debt, and it's about how, uh, as we get more control over uh, the, the pandemic itself within our own borders, what are the economic choices that sit within the government? We've talked about the uh, the money being given for construction, which goes to support jobs and tradies. Uh, the, the reverse effect going on with childcare. But Scott Morrison does say we're now on the road back. What, what, plainly, he seems to be uh, determined, as it is his duty to be determined, to get the uh, government books uh, in better shape than they might have been from where we were a few months ago. What is your read on uh, Scott Morrison's kind of um, pandemic recovery thinking at this stage? Mm. Well, I, th- I think it's going to be a fascinating road because I don't think there's too much certainty in it in terms of how the public react or, or what they choose to do. Absolutely, his premise is that he wants to try to wind back all of the profligate spending that's been required, in most people's view, to be able to get Australians through the pandemic. Now, my first question is, is that uh, now him bringing ideology into it with that view that these extra handouts need to be wound back quickly when at the start of the crisis it was both him and the treasurer saying there's no place for ideology in the midst of a crisis words that apparently john howard had passed on to josh frydenberg that's the first question the second question is is it even necessarily the right thing to do you see this oecd report 
suggesting that the worst thing that a government like Australia, which the OECD is praising for having done a good job up until now, one of the better nations in, in how it's managed the crisis, both in a health and economic sense, but it warns of risks of doing more economic harm than good if you wind back payments too soon. And then the last part to the equation, Hugh, is the electoral consequences of this. You know, a lot of people have been exposed to the welfare system, uh, you know, not even people who are on JobKeeper, but people who have actually lost their jobs and gone on to JobSeeker, exposed to the welfare system, but not really exposed to it. Because JobSeeker is twice what the New Start allowance was pre-pandemic. And therefore, you've got hundreds of thousands of Australians who don't yet understand just how punitive our welfare system can be and just how unable they would be to survive on the kind of money that goes out the door. What happens when job seeker gets wound back to new start levels, much less when job keeper comes off, which might throw more and more Australians on to new start? Fancy going from $1,500 a fortnight uh, to somewhere in the vicinity of, uh, you know, what is it? It's, it's roughly five fifty a fortnight. Yeah, it's unbelievable. At best, five fifty if you're getting rental allowances and so on. So, you know, there's so many unanswered questions about how the public are going to react to all of that. And then here's the final one for you. Does it matter? Because does, does anyone look at the government and its economic decision-making and say, well, you know what? We don't like what they're doing. We're going to entrust labour with the economy because all the polls tell us people don't trust labour with the economy, whether that's fair or not. So is Scott Morrison in a win-win situation, politically speaking here? If everything goes well, he says, great work, re-elect me, I saved us all. If everything goes badly, he looks over at Albo and runs scare campaigns and says, don't risk labour, God, things are tough. They'll do it worse than us. The polls so, tell uh, us that might work. So I, I want to talk about where labour sits in all of this and, and also to drill down just a little bit more about that job keeper, job seeker choice that, that is sitting in front of uh, Scott Morrison. We're going to take a quick break, though, and uh, see you on the other side of it, PBO. 10 Speaks' latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Neralda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page, on 10 Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. This is episode uh, 58 uh, of The Professor and the Hack. And we're really trying to get a sense here as to what it's going to look like as we try to edge our way back towards normal. Um, you know, we've already seen that job keepers coming off some sectors, the childcare sector, by the middle of next month, next July. Uh, we're also hearing, for example, a threat by one of the serious contenders for Vir for the Virgin Airlines, for the recapitalization of Virgin, the one that's led by a, a Bain Capital, that mm. is saying that it could withdraw its bid if uh, JobKeeper expires at the end of September. Now, the government has said it's going to end at the end of September. There's been some suggestions there may be some hang on, but, you know, for some sectors. But we've actually got a situation there where you've got a commercial uh, process to recapitalize an airline, which it carries within it an implied threat against the government saying, we're going to pull out of this unless you can tell us right now that the airline industry or the constituent parts are going to be defended beyond the legislated period uh, through JobKeeper. How does that work? <laughs> it's, 
it's an interesting tactic. I mean, I can understand why, you know, Bain Capital would choose to do that because it, it's relevant to their structuring, I suppose, of how they think this business is a worthwhile one to purchase and to take over. Uh, but it puts the government in, a, in an interesting position. Does it want to be seen to be getting bullied, if you will, um, by such an operator in business to extend JobKeeper for them uh, when it won't do it for other sectors or indeed when it's saying it won't do it writ large? For what it's worth, I think it was, I think that the government was and is always intending to extend JobKeeper for some sectors, even though they keep saying it expires in September and that's that. They'll just name it something else. You know, things like the tourism sector, the airline industry, you know, there are industries that will be impacted into the longer term beyond September where I can't see the Morrison government just hanging them out to dry whatever their ideology or whatever they say about JobKeeper. But they're going to try to package it up as individualised forms of assistance so that they can rhetorically make the point. JobKeeper ends in September. That's it for everyone no exceptions. Now let's go about individual industries and looking at how we can package things is, up for them. Sure. Is there a danger that we get back into a sports rorts type of setup whereby once you start then picking out uh, sectors, areas of industry, subsectors of industry and say, well, you can keep this kind of support from the taxpayer, uh, other areas, you just have to go swing in the breeze. That's almost inevitably from what we know of this government and its antecedents, uh, what, we may well see is decisions that are made with taxpayer money as sports rorts was purely on the basis of where the votes are, not necessarily where the best mm. good lies. Is that, is that paranoia or is that, is, is that real? No, I think it's very real. Uh, I think it's a real issue. Uh, and I think it will be a reality because inevitably elected governments, um, you know, however they choose to do it, whether it's overtly or covertly, they tend to pander to and prefer the constituencies that they see as benefiting them. So there's no reason to think that that won't happen in this field as well. I guess the issue is how open and blatant does it become such that it does or doesn't get exposed in a way that sports rorts has been exposed. But certainly that's, you know, that's kind of what elected governments do. And then the flip side to that is that voters uh, can then make their judgments on the other side come election time, of course, so much else comes into the mix come election time, but they can make their decision whether they feel that some sectors have been left out that they are a party to that uh, perhaps shouldn't have been left out. But it's it's going to be messy. Uh, and the other factor, of course, is how do you decide which industries and for how long you support them that are profoundly impacted by the fallout from COVID? Because it may well be that the world that we're moving into is a, if not permanently, near permanently different world than the pre-COVID world was. Do you just forever and a day subsidise industries that are, if you like, redundant or have been unavoidably changed as a result of the pandemic? Sorry to interrupt you. This is exactly yeah. what the OECD report saying. It's basically saying the government can't uphold, I'm quoting here, can't uphold uh, private sector uh, activity, employment and wages for a prolonged period. In other words, the OECD is saying it's not the government's job to hold up uh, private sector areas uh, for an extended period of time. And it also says capital and workers from impaired sectors and businesses will have to move towards expanding uh, areas. So basically what it's saying is that the government can't prop things up forever, but there's a real signal there to you and me and everyone who might be listening here to the workers 
And that is that if your sector is one of those areas which has been worst hit by this pandemic and all its implications, you're just going to have to move. There's going to mm. be, you can't keep hoping that either the government's going to prop up that sector by one means or another, or that it's going to miraculously come springing back to life as it once was. That we are in for profound structural changes and that the message is not so much to governments, it's to you and me and everybody. Have a look at the industry that you're in. And if it's not, you know, mm. make your own assessment. You may have to discover some new passionate interest for, you know, shoe shining or some other thing. Well, at, at some point, you know, we will see that the changes as a result of COVID are permanent in some areas and not in others. So it may well be that it's a scaled back airline sector, certainly with international travel, but perhaps even with domestic travel, because people have discovered Zoom and other ways that they can have meetings without all of that travel. So that's a, a reality that people face. Tourism you know, domestic tourism rather than international tourism will profoundly impact on the tourism sector. Universities, you know, particularly if the government's not going to come to the party and make up the shortfall of losing international students, universities need to rebrand how they function. And, and does that mean putting up with worse infrastructure and fewer research positions to help bolster uh, the rankings of universities on the international stage because it doesn't matter as much anymore because it's the domestic market that matters because international student numbers dry up. So the rankings only become a more domestically competitive set of rankings rather than necessarily where we sit on the world stage. That was the case in decades past before the rise and rise of international student numbers turned things into a bidding war internationally to try to go up the international rankings to get more students coming here. All of these shifts are, are going to be you know, really significant. What does it do to the hospitality sector with the way that we dine or the way that we, uh, you know, go to pubs and clubs and all that sort of thing? So, you know, th there is a, a point at which government can continue to offer assistance to these sectors where they think there will be a snapback eventually. But when it looks like it's perhaps the equivalent of the domestic car manufacturing industry, eventually, particularly a Liberal government, they're just going to pull a pin because they're going to realise that it's time for people to get in line with the brave new world we're in. So then let's look to the alternatives on this. You mentioned uh, Alba, Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader in this is poll numbers are very poor uh, at the moment. That's understandable on many levels. Uh, there's not a great deal he can do, but even having said that, he seems underwhelming in these times. Um, something seems to have gone missing with Albo, and I'm not sure what it is because from my days in, in Canberra, um, you know, you get to know politicians pretty well. One thing about uh, Anthony Albanese is that he, he has a very, you know, easygoing, witty charm about him personally. He's very popular. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he was the people's choice in the Labour Party, of course, to uh, become mm. the leader of the party. And then the, uh, the numbers men came in and swung behind Bill Shorten uh, at that time. And yet, People are not seeing that. Now that he's got the opposition leader job, there's no sign of that. He seems quite wooden, um, a little laboured on his lines. He's trying to deliver witty lines uh, and cut through lines. But um, there's it, just a sense that, that they're going through the motions a bit at the moment. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with that about the woodenness and them coming across like they're going through the motions a little bit. I, I don't entirely agree that, you know, he's lacking popularity at the moment. The problem is that when you look at the polls, 
what he's lacking is a comparative standing next to the Prime Minister, which I sort of understand in the midst of a crisis when the PM's making the decisions and particularly when things are going relatively well, notwithstanding the odd problem here and there, suddenly the opposition leader looks like a carper and, and looks like he's not the better PM when you see those better PM rankings. But when you look at Albanese's satisfaction rating, it to, to, you know, okay, fine, the PM's at stratospheric levels with his satisfaction rating versus his dissatisfaction. But Albanese's in positive territory too. I think he had a satisfaction rating of 41 and a dissatisfaction of 38. Uh, so he's not an opposition leader like what a Bill Shorten was or what other opposition leaders, Tony Abbott in his day, even though he won the election, you know, where they had, you know, really negative dissatisfaction. At the moment, it's more that people are just sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, eh, you know, you're not really in the game, which is partly your point here, I realise. So what does he do about that? Well, in some ways, I think a lot of it's out of his hands, you know, how does the recession pan out? How does the government's response pan out? Are there examples of pork barrelling along the way? Do sectors have cuts to government funding that would have been better off to have them sustained? Is funding sustained in ways that people don't agree with? Let's look at where debt's at. You know, these are all issues that will present themselves eventually. I think Albanese is almost like a, a passenger on a roller coaster at this point in time. Yeah, look, it's another thing that makes it, I think, probably depressing for the Labor Party. Of course, anyone who wants Australia to do well wants this to flow through. The OECD saying tough as it will be for Australia, we're better off than most. But also looking at a plus 4% uh, growth rate, that's the, the snapback, I guess, next year, if mm. there isn't a second wave. So we could start looking towards heading into an election where, yes, uh, Scott Morrison has presided over uh, a recession the first in three decades, but people will perceive that it wasn't his fault, that he handled it pretty well, that growth is, is growing back into the economy. Uh, you know, now's not the time to change horses, all those other kinds of lines. Uh, if that was the way in which it pans out, I mean, Scott Morrison could well be set up you don't want to get ahead of yourself in these things. And these are secondary issues relative to the real issues of getting the economy back on its feet and people still safe. But um, he's not looking too bad from where we stand at the moment for the next election. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I just, you know, I, I genuinely don't see um, what the pathway at the next election is for the Labor Party, uh, unless everything collapses and voters just decide they're going to penalise the government. Anything short of that, I think, like I was saying a little bit earlier, I think that the government's got a really easy narrative when it's a debate on the economy the way things are. If they've managed it well, they say, give us applause. If they've managed it badly and there are problems, they say, don't risk Labor, they're worse than us. You know it based on what voters say in, in polls about who are the preferred economic managers. Now, that doesn't last forever. If the government mismanages the economic fallout of coronavirus, eventually voters will wise up and penalise them for that. But I don't think that will happen in time for the next election. I think that their natural advantage, fairly or unfairly, in this space over Labor is one that gets them the next election, whether they're successful or unsuccessful, and just say, don't flick to Labor, it'll be even worse. Eventually it gets them. But that's not in time for Albo, is it? Because he's got one election. Everyone knows that. Uh, and then it's the election after that, if Labor loses it, then they start to think about, well, do we look at Tanya Klibersek? Do we look at Chris Bowen? Do we go to Jim Chalmers? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And one of them could end up being the beneficiary of the it's time factor to get rid of the coalition after however many terms. Or um, if things have gone badly, they might be able to spell out a vision for Labor that becomes more credible in the eyes of voters around the economy. 
On the other big story of the last few days, the, the rallies that took place uh, inspired by the United States, but driven by anguish that uh, is longstanding in Australia itself. The, the, um, are they Black Lives Matter rallies? Are they indigenous uh, disadvantaged rallies? Whatever you want to call them. Um, do you see that there is any prospect for there being any profound change within Australia as a consequence of these rallies from, from what you're hearing and seeing around Canberra? I hear that it wasn't even mentioned by coalition MPs and senators at the party room meeting as they regathered in Canberra. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's as far as action in Australia goes, it's probably more just an awareness reminder um, when it comes to what's happened to our Indigenous population with a medium to long-term hope that by keeping it there as a reminder, something might flow down the track. But I, I, I don't see, I mean, yeah, there were big crowds, um, but I don't see particularly this government, um, you know, moving in some profound direction uh, when it comes to the combination of deaths in custody and Indigenous incarceration. I, I think it's a more profound impact in the short term that we're likely to see overseas, which is obviously a whole other discussion. Um, with what we've seen happening around Black Lives Matter there. Yeah, that's bleak for those who turn up at those protests, the thought that uh, nothing much might change here in Australia. I went down to the one in Sydney at the time that I set off from home. It was still going to be an illegal um, protest. The Supreme Court had made that decision. In fact, uh, just minutes before the the thing began, the appeals court made it a legal gathering, but the the crowds Mm. who were gathered there were ready to turn up to an illegal protest and I went down there just to see what might uh, flow from that because uh, the police of course have a legal duty to um, to take action against an illegal gathering and there was real danger I thought in in those protests in Sydney where it went into the courts uh, that you might wind up with you know clashes of real police violence and and counter-violence and all kinds of things that would have reinforced people's perceptions on both sides about what was going on there. As it turned out, it was peaceful, um, almost entirely large crowds of people. But one of the things that struck me, which I haven't seen before, is there was a large subset of that crowd were young Asian Australians or perhaps Asian um, students on, on more temporary visas. And I haven't seen that in in, in an Australian demonstration uh perhaps there were a couple around about the uh, beijing olympics and the and the anti-beijing olympics where some students went down where there was a specific chinese notion related to the what the protest was all about that's going back to 2008 but in a general demonstration i thought that was significant because i thought um it signaled to me that a group that is not noticeably prominent and visible as in protest groups young Asian Australians or those living here um, felt some identity with the issue of, um, of racism in Australia and a sort of counter-racism protest. And given what China has been saying about us, I thought that's one certainly to watch. Um, there's been limited but tragic outbreaks of open racism against Chinese or East Asian appearing people during the pandemic. This, you know, this is not nationwide, but I just got the feeling that there's there's a, a sense of passion and feeling there by some young people from East Asian backgrounds on the notion of racism in Australia, and, and I hadn't seen that before. So, um, you know, one to watch in all of these things. Do, do you get any sense in in Canberra among your politicians you talk to that it's on their radar at all? 
No, look, to, you know, almost sadly, no would be the, the answer to that at the moment. But these things can change very quickly. You know, there's a very, you know, this, the, there can often be a one-dimensional, one-at-a-time view in Canberra <laughs> um, around issues. And at the moment, as you walk around and you talk to the politicians, it is all about um, the COVID fallout economically as well as some lingering remaining discussions around the health side of it. Um, but... You know, the ability to go more widely than that at the moment is pretty limited in Canberra is the impression I get. Interesting. Uh, PVO, we're out of time. Great to talk to you. Uh, have Likewise. a good weekend. Hope you get some uh, a break. And um, even if everyone else is staying down there locked up in Canberra getting up to mischief, uh, we'll talk to you again <laughs> next week. Will do. All the best. Take care. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.